some try to be homogeneous, like with everyone being vegan or of a certain religion. But more often, these communities actually value diverse ages, backgrounds, and views with one shared value being that they're all committed to working out their problems together. Welcome to The Shrinks After Hours, the last Tuesday of the month when we have a much more informal conversation just about things we think are important to chat about. I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. And I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. Come on in. Come on in while Julie and I chat about intentional communities. So Julie, do you ever think about moving? You know, the kids are grown and out of the house. You think about simplifying your life? A lot of people downsize at this point. Actually, Cindy, I think about it, but I always come up against the same issue. Where would I go? I do live in a community that works pretty hard to be comfortable for people to age in place, but a lot of places are not so convenient. I'm curious about what people decide to do, what their vision is. Me too. I know people that have moved into the city from the suburban town I live in. Others have moved to beach communities for retirement or to be near their children. It just seems like such a big decision because if you move away, everything you're familiar with gets left behind. For now, I'm going to stay put, but then, you know, other people leave and that's kind of sad. So how do you avoid being sort of lonely as you age? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm actually not sure what I'm going to do exactly, but you know, for most of history, the majority of people lived in tribes or villages. We're used to living together in some type of community. True. But for increasing generations of people, that has really changed. As this country developed, it seems like a major value has been to become independent, not dependent. And as it has become more technologically developed, that just seems to have expanded. So we're not supposed to need each other. Obviously, now people move around individually or as a couple, maybe they repeatedly move, but they don't move in large groups um, unless you know they're in a cult or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think people have forgot about interdependence. Yeah. Most of the time people live in single family households and are feeling increased loneliness from that less connection and more social isolation and separation. These things can lead to higher rates of adult depression, more serious health issues, and even earlier death for some older people. True. Some people still feel strong ties to their religious communities or extended families. But most people in this country don't have those built-in communities. And as they age, they can get lonely. There's actually an epidemic of loneliness in aging in the United States at the moment. And, you know, maybe we should do an episode on that. So to avoid the loneliness, and probably for other reasons as well, many people are trying to recreate some sense of community, which has led to various experiments over many years with utopian communities, cooperative apartment housing, communes, and more recently, co-housing. And part of the reason this is trending is that baby boomers, our largest cohort, are aging, and the idea of moving to an over-50 community or one of those continuum of care communities is not attractive. It doesn't attract me, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Not to mention nursing homes. Depressing just to think about it. It is. The idea, and now the movement of co-housing, started in the 1960s in Denmark, 
And it was introduced here in the 1990s by American architects, Catherine McCammont and Charles Durrett after one of their visits. Right, Julie. They wrote a book about it, which we'll mention at the end of the podcast. And then they helped to develop the first co-housing community in the United States in Davis, California in 1991. And within 10 years, there were about 20 co-housing communities and the Co-Housing Association of the United States was developed. And now there are hundreds of these communities all over the world populated by people looking for more community connection. It's neat. It is. It's an interesting idea. The the idea of these communities is that they're intentionally intergenerational. And part of the goal is to strengthen social ties between older retirement age people and younger people in a way that balances out work, family, and community for everybody. In a way that maybe has disappeared because families used to stay together and you'd have intergenerational relationships, which, you know, they've diminished over the years. True. So these communities are often designed with private homes clustered around shared spaces. These communities are typically interdependent models where, for example, older people help with childcare or pet care while young professionals are working and may also be helpful with gardening or other strengths or knowledge that they happen to have. And everyone feels more connection. The elders aren't isolated, but are an important part of the community. Right. Common meals are frequently eaten together and everyone in the community is fairly well known to each other. There's often a homeowner's dues that includes things like ride shares or bike shares. So it's helpful for older people. They might get a ride to doctor's appointments or things like that. Right. People who choose to live in a co-housing community are often looking to have minimal impact on the earth and value community and social engagement. Right. And, you know, they vary a lot, these communities. Some try to be homogeneous, like with everyone being vegan or of a certain religion. But more often, these communities actually value diverse ages, backgrounds, and views with one shared value being that they're all committed to working out their problems together. Yeah, it seems like people attracted to these communities are also often looking for a greater sense of community for themselves, including more interaction and support from neighbors than might typically be the norm, although some neighborhoods have that. True. Many intentional communities run on a consensus model where residents have decision-making power for everything from how money is spent, shared money, obviously, to the physical design of the community or its housing structures. Residents can weigh in on the gamut of issues that may be relevant to people living together, like pets, meals, noise, maintenance, internet, gardening. There's usually a common house or a clubhouse that's used for business and gathering and a host of other things they do. Regularly scheduled social times for get-togethers, meals, or celebrations are are part of these communities, and you're expected to participate at least some of the time. A lot of the communities do value the fact that lots of people need some personal space and privacy and individual time as well. Yeah, there's some shared money like in dues and stuff, but people keep their own money. It's not like a commune where you put it all in. Or a cult. Yeah. Homes aren't cheap in these places, though. The cost of homes usually include a share in the common facilities and in many of the green building plans, energy bills are very low. The cost you pay also include general maintenance for community facilities and joint holdings and to save for other projects the community might want to do. Right. For a lot of people, these costs are well worth their emotional well-being and quality of life. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that money is saved. The houses are often a bit smaller and they use clean, efficient energy sources. So not as much as needed in some ways, since some things can be shared. 
everyone doesn't necessarily need their own tools or their own swimming pool. Yeah, there are often a lot of shared common facilities like a large kitchen for group meals or events where people can dine together. Sometimes there are guest rooms, laundry, library, meeting spaces, craft and exercise areas, offices, community gardens, pools, performance spaces. And then, you know, the shared rides means you might not need a car, you know, that kind of thing. You name it. Some communities are pretty insular, though many have a lot of open space that they encourage anyone who wants to share, like for people outside the community to come to explore their trails or use the playgrounds or other outdoor recreation. Yeah, although the Denmark model was intergenerational, some communities are age-restricted, usually for older adults like 55 or 60 and older, or they're themed like a community of artists. Every community is unique and differs in the desires of the group in terms of how finances are shared and what the design of the community will look like. It can range from style of homes, number of dinners shared every week, and what expectations neighbors can have from their fellow community members. New versions of the co-housing model are also emerging that are geared toward young professionals' lifestyle preferences. Even making it easy to move from one of these communities to another around the country, as you know, young professionals often do, or they can rent space within a community. It still includes communal space, shared meals, and the intention to live cooperatively together. In fact, it's like instant community in a new place with a lot of amenities. Yeah, I have some patients who tell me about their neighborhoods, many of which become very close-knit and hang together without this intentionality and communal peace. But that does seem to be the exception. True. And those neighborhoods can change over time when people retire or move away. I mean, they're not intentional, like you said. If you had an interest in such a place, you would really have to do your research and make sure you were ready for this kind of thing, though. For example, in some communities, you have to walk through something like a shared courtyard or other space to get to your private space your home. I know for me, sometimes I want to walk in and out of my home and not have to meet or greet anyone at that moment. And what if you have a trap talker next door? There may be no way to avoid them on your way home. Boy, that would be annoying. You'd have to intentionally avoid them. A sense of togetherness seems nice, but I also have this feeling of a group of people just waiting to be my friend and, you know, ready to like jump on that. And I'm a much slower person to start up in an important relationship like that. I think it's interesting that there might be a kind of social pressure to make those friends quickly, or maybe you could unfortunately get a reputation of someone who isn't friendly. I'm kind of like you, Cindy. I'm kind of slow to warm up. So that is a potential barrier. I mean, the place might be just too friendly. Yeah. There are also several actual barriers for people looking for this type of lifestyle. The sometimes prohibitive price is the biggest one, whether that be in creating a community from the ground up or affording the cost of a single room in one of the millennial variety communities. And it's hard to finance it. Banks respond suspiciously. They've never heard of such a thing and are sometimes less likely to offer a loan for something a bunch of people are going to own together. Yeah, it might take a while for them to get used to the idea. Mm -hmm. It can cost millions to buy the land and start building a community. And there aren't any grants or special loans available for people interested in doing such a thing, making it a challenge for people without a significant amount of wealth to make it real. So co-housing, while seemingly a good option for people with limited resources or income, actually sounds like it's not usually an affordable option. Yeah, we did see some communities intentionally planning some more affordable housing or even rental units in their plans so that they'd have a mix of socioeconomics in the neighborhood, which is 
cool. But it seems like a lot of these are still developing and some are struggling to find the money to get it off the ground. That's a really challenging, though, good idea. Unfortunately, I think people with money don't often want to live with people without much money. They don't want the guilt. They don't want to feel responsible. It's hard to make a successful mixed socioeconomic community. And that's sad. Like people with money, not wanting to live with people without money. That's just a weird kind of boundary. And this would just seem like such a cool way to take care of each other on a broader social level. It would be great for people to at least have the option, regardless of their income level. There are a lot of ways that someone could contribute and bring value that isn't necessarily in dollars. That's often true. And unfortunately, it's usually people with less money that don't have other resources that can support them and help them to feel less lonely and to get their needs met. There also aren't a ton of co-housing communities given the numbers in our population. Maybe as these kind of communities grow, the creativity around how to make it more affordable and welcoming for everybody might also grow. Yeah, I actually feel pretty optimistic about that. There are a lot of people who are starting to feel like they're getting old, who want something different, something creative, something meaningful, and they want community. And I think at least some of them will be trying out all sorts of new ideas to get there. Yeah. So it's an old book at this point, but if you're interested in the basic Danish concept introduced by Catherine McCammon and Charles Dorrit, their 1988 book is entitled Co-Housing, A Contemporary Approach to Housing Ourselves. And there's also been some articles about it, and it's, it's just a very interesting concept and hope you enjoyed learning about it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shrinks on Third. Till next time. Take care.